Hello, and today's guest is Bernie Clark on the Keenan Yoga Podcast. It's lovely to have you here, Bernie. We've talked once already. It was a very, very popular episode, and uh, I'm really pleased and um, flattered that Bernie's agreed to come back to the Keenan Yoga. Welcome, Bernie. And uh, Thank you, to have you. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Yeah, so just have to mention Bernie's trilogy of books, which has been, had a, actually a big impact on my own teaching and on many people's um, practices and teaching, I believe, which is uh, your spine and your... Is that right, Bernie? Yes, the yeah, third one yeah. is your upper body. Your upper body, your yoga. Okay, so you know, read them. Um, they really are great, and I'm not just saying that. They really are really great um, and uh, well worth a read. So today, without further ado, Bernie, uh, I think last time, I, don't, I think we talked generally last time, but this time we decided to pick two particular, and let's see if we can get any further than this, but two particular problem areas for people practicing Ashtanga yoga. Now, Bernie doesn't teach Ashtanga. He was an Ashtanga practitioner. If you listen to the last one, uh, he teaches power yoga, yin yoga, and various forms of yoga, but he knows all too well about Ashtanga, I think, and has done it and has tried it out. Um, so he knows what he's talking about in terms of Ashtanga yoga, and uh, and he also probably knows that uh, Ashtanga yoga does affect the knees quite often. Uh, many, many people are mm -hmm. listening, I'm sure, and my myself included, uh, have had problems with the knees. I've had two meniscus operations in my early years myself, and uh, and then there's the lower back, probably the second thing to go. So it goes probably knees, lower back, shoulders, um, you know, and then a variety a variety yeah. of complaints from there. <laughs> but so today, let's see how far we can get. Um, we'll start maybe with the with the knees, and uh, Bernie's going to explain the knee joint and and why I suppose why why this happens and what we can do perhaps to to help with that. Uh, over to you, yeah. Bernie. Yeah. Well, as you say, I, I've been a fan of Ashtanga Yoga since the early two thousands. I went through a variety of teacher trainings. I used to teach at a a center here in Vancouver called City Yoga at the time. I remember and, it, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mike Dennison brought yeah. in a whole bunch of people like David Williams, David Swenson, Tim Miller, Nancy came by. So I've had a chance to study with a lot of these people and put their wisdom into practice and teaching. But then I reached a point where, yeah, like you, I broke both my knees. And it's surprising when I started to ask about broken knees in the yoga world, just how many teachers have blown their meniscus. I mean, it's not just you and I. Eric Schiffman did it. David Life did it. Leslie Kamenov did it. So many people have blown their knees because their hips weren't ready to go do lotus. And you know, in Ashtanga, there's a lot of poses where you need lotus or half lotus, and all the pressure seems to end up in the knees if your hips aren't open enough. So that's what I did. Eventually, I had the arthroscopic surgery to trim away the problem. And other people, like Eric Schiffman, he didn't get the operation, but uh, he just worked with weights and lightweights and squats and so forth and david life he did a lot of dajrasana sitting on the heels and he claimed that helped his knees but i talked to richard freeman about it one time and he just kind of commiserated with me and said well you know there's not much blood flow into this region of the body so they don't really heal themselves very well so he kind of said yeah, yeah an operation is probably not a bad thing you know, that's a total coincidence. Yeah. Let me, sorry to interrupt you there, but he, that yeah. was Richard Freeman was the catalyst for me as well. You know, I, yeah. one work, yeah, the workshop in Oxford, I was talking, like, walking home with him. He was outside. I was chatting to him, like, as we walk into an Indian restaurant, in fact. And I said, look, you know, what should I do? And he said, you know what? Yeah, there's no problem. Just have the operation. So that, you know, he really was the catalyst for me as well, you know, to have the meniscus. And I have to say, yeah. you know, I was fortunate. I was in my early, early twenties and it, it worked, but I'm not sure about now, how I would go yeah. at 45. <laughs> Well, Sorry. the surgeon I had my operation with, he had a torn meniscus and he didn't mm. get the surgery. He says a lot of people just live with it and eventually the pain may go away. 
uh, I decided it was interfering with my yoga practice, so I wanted the pain to go away. And it's kind of ironic in the Hatha Yoga Pratipika, you know, they've got these 15 asanas listed and they always have their the selling point. It's quite a marketing manual in those days. And it says Padmasana, you know, our famous lotus pose, is the destroyer of all disease, available only to the very wise. Only a few can do it. <laughs> and in my experience, well, you... talking to a lot of other yoga teachers, Padmasana is not the destroyer of disease, it's the destroyer of needs. And so many people are trying to get Padmasana and they don't have the external rotation available in the hips and they take it out on the poor knee. <laughs> so, wait, no, let's talk about the knee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, I don't have my, my bones. Usually when I'm teaching the anatomy courses, I've got the bones with me and so forth. But the knee is kind of a unique joint in that it's not a bone-on-bone stop. Like if you open your elbow out to the side, what stops you from extending further is at the end of the ulna, the proximal end of the ulna, there's a, a bit of a, a cave or a peak, it's called the electron process, and it fits into a cave at the end of the humerus. And when those two bones hit, you just can't go any further. The same with your hips. When you're opening up your hips, eventually the femur is going to hit the pelvis, and that's it. That's the end of the game. It's called compression. But with the knees, there's no bony stop there. And when I first started to research and had me from a yoga perspective, I totally misunderstood where the kneecap was. I always thought the kneecap was right between where the end of the femur is and the beginning of the tibia. And it was kind of spanning those two bones. And I thought, well, maybe it's the bone of the, the kneecap that prevented me from hyperextending. But then once I started to study this more, I realized the kneecap never touches the tibia. It never goes close to your shin bones. It's always hmm. on top of the femur. And as you bend the knee, as you flex the knee, it just slides down. And then as the femur comes to like a 90 degree angle over top of the tibia, the patella just goes right into a little valley. At the bottom of the, the femur, there's like two little legs of a rocking chair, you know, the rounded part of a rocking mm-hmm. chair. These are called mm-hmm. condyles. At the end of the femur, at the end of our humerus, we got these rounded bits called condyles. There's two of them. And in between, there's a valley. And it's in that valley that the patella goes in. So the patella never actually touches the tibia. So there's nothing bony stopping the knee from extending or flexing or hyperextending. It's all soft tissues, mostly hmm. these things called ligaments. Now, in the so knee, what you say, you're saying yeah. you could kind of hyperextend the knee theoretically. You not only could, you should. Everybody hyperextends their knees to varying degrees because we're right. we're a biped. We're one of the only true bipeds in the world that doesn't have a tail for counterbalance. And to help us walk, the back leg, when you're walking, hyperextends. On average, about six degrees. So five for women, six for men, but it doesn't matter. The normal range, by normal I mean 95% of the population falls within this range. We hyperextend between one degree to 17 degrees. So the knee is designed to bend backwards a bit. Hmm. That allows us to bring the, the foot way behind us as we walk forward. If you ever had a knee replacement surgery and the surgeon didn't pick the right prosthetics and you couldn't hyperextend, you had completely straight legs, you would walk very awkwardly because you need to have that little bit of hyperextension. The fears we have in many of your yoga classes of hyperextending the knee is not really well-founded. There are two ligaments that really stop the, the femur and the tibia from going over top of each other. 
there's four ligaments in all. There's two going down the sides called the collateral ligaments. And these prevent the knee from doing abduction and adduction. You mm. don't want the, the, the tibia to, to go side, side to side yeah. underneath yeah, the femur. Yeah, that would be bad. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. a bad <laughs> movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got these collateral <laughs> ligaments that keep that movement from happening. Yeah. But imagine if you had two two-by-fours stacked on top of each other. Mm. The top one we'll call the femur. The bottom one we'll call the tibia. Now, you can imagine you could slide that top one off the front of the bottom one. Well, that you don't want. So that is restricted by something called the posterior cruciate ligament. And mm. It goes from the backside of the tibia. If you think about the top of the tibia, it's called the tibial plateau. The PCL or the posterior cruciate ligament goes from the backside of the tibial plateau to the front of the femur. And it prevents the femur from going forward or the tibia from going backward. And then from the front of the tibial plateau to the back of the femur is the anterior crucial ligament. So anterior posterior refers to its arising on the tibia. So it's mm. starting from the front of the tibia going backwards. That's the yep. anterior crucial ligament. <laughs> from the back of the tibia going forward is the posterior crucial ligament. And they cross in the knee joint. That's why they're called yep. cruciates. The yes. For crossing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's the ACL that prevents hyperextension. The ACL is a very tough piece of tissue. It can withstand 2,300 newtons of force in an average person. Now, nobody People knows do what a newton it. is. No. They do, no. but usually it's in a dynamic movement, like playing soccer or football or rugby, yeah. and they get tackled, or they're running and jumping, or they're skiing, and their skis go one skiing way, and the body goes another run. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in that dynamic one-time movement, you're putting tens of thousands of newtons of force into that ligament but right. standing on one leg like a lot of people are freaked out about in say nataraja the king dancer yeah or even in tree pose or triangle pose you'll see somebody's knees hyperextended and they get all freaked out about it you're going to break your knee right well, if yeah. you do the trigonometry say you've got a 120 pound uh, woman doing triangle pose so that 120 pounds is distributed over two legs and yeah. she's got maybe a hyperextension of 15 <laughs> degrees, she's putting about 40 or 50 pounds of pressure on the ACL. Now, as I say, most people don't know what a Newton is, but that tissue <laughs> can withstand 2,300 Newtons of force, which is equivalent to about 510 pounds. Okay, yeah. That's I mean... a normal person. Athletes, they train their ligaments. They can withstand much more than that. But the average person can take 500 pounds on the ACL. And in a triangle pose, you're only putting about 30 pounds in it. In Ashtanga, it's often the, the, the warrior. When you see pic the old pictures of, say, uh, Krishnamacharya or yeah, I think even Sharat does a, does a warrior with, a, with the knee over the ankle. And people say, you know, oh, don't put the knee over the ankle. And there was, there's this whole thing, with, particularly with the warrior, I think, you know, and uh, where the knee should be placed. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, I mean, the cruciate ligament, you don't hear so many people tearing it within the Ashtanga. I mean, I hear I had students that have gone skiing and taught it, for example, and still recovering. Yeah. Because it's quite a serious one, right? A lot more serious than a, than a meniscus tear, generally. Um, yeah, and, Meniscus tears are much more common in yoga than ACL ruptures. Now, it is possible yeah. somebody who is an athlete and they damage their ACL and it's hanging on by a thread and they come into a triangle pose, that one person might break it. But chances are they're going to break it just climbing stairs or right, just right, right, know, right. walking down the street because that's also yeah. putting pressure on it. So it's very, very unlikely that anybody in a yoga pose is going to hyperextend the leg so much that it's going to damage this tissue 
we don't put anywhere near the tolerance to it. And the other factor is every tissue needs exercise. Every tissue needs a load, needs stress. If you don't stress your cruciate ligaments, they're going to atrophy. They're going to get weaker Mm. and weaker. Mm. So athletes, dancers, gymnasts, they're constantly stressing their knees, and that makes these tissues thicker and stronger. So a professional athlete, their ACL could withstand 10,000 newtons, like almost 1,500 pounds of stress because they developed it through their practice. So the, the fear we have in yoga of hyperextending the knee, I think it's very unfounded, except mm. for the one or two people who have a real serious injury or they're in their 90s and just from a lifetime well-led, their, their cruciates can't take that much stress anymore. But again, yeah. if, you're, if your cruciate's that weak, you're probably going to damage them anyway just in through daily living. Mm. What about where does the knee get damaged then more, more commonly? Are there different um, strains of meniscus tear? Um, you, you mentioned people trying to heal them themselves. That's a common idea. Can, can, you know, can one heal the meniscus? You know, there seems to be this, this idea about lack of blood flow there. Um, and, you know, and so many people are debating, should I or shouldn't I have an operation on the knee? What, what would you say to all of that? Yeah, everyone is different, of course. That's the whole mm. reason for my, my books is that we're all unique. <laughs> And what works for one person isn't going to work for another person. So the meniscus, just to go through the anatomy of that, it's like a little gasket. The two ends of the femur and the tibia, they don't fit together very well. The top of the tibia is kind of flat, but the bottom of the femur is rounded like a rocking chair. So they don't fit together very well. So Mother Nature has designed these two little C-shaped gaskets, little pieces of cartilage that fit between the two bones, and they kind of help to guide the movement of the femur. So when the femur flexes, it not only kind of goes backwards, but it also moves forward. So there's a turning and a gliding forward. And in that gliding forward, it kind of keeps the end of the femur inside the the center of the C of the meniscus. So the meniscus are a little bit like guides, but also when the knee is completely straight, it's a shock, shock absorber between the weight of the upper body onto the tibia. So it kind of helps to make the two surfaces more congruent. So it's shock absorbing and it guides the movement. The meniscus on the outside of the leg, called the lateral collateral, the lateral meniscus, it is free flowing. It can kind of slide around a bit more. But the meniscus, the little C-shaped cartilage on the inside of the knee, it actually is part of the medial collateral ligament. It's like one tissue that's just grown together. But anatomists will cut them apart and show two different things. So if you look in an anatomy book, you'll see the meniscus separate from the collateral ligament, but it's all one continuum, like one rainbow of tissue. And because it's all continuous, it doesn't move around as much. It can't slide out of the way. And what happens when we do something like a lotus pose? We have to externally rotate the femur at the hip socket. Now, most people get stopped eventually by the neck of the femur hitting the back rim of the hip socket. And once those two bones come into compression, you can't externally rotate any further. Now, some people, they have the hip socket facing way out to the side of the pelvis. It's called retroverted. And they can easily externally rotate as much as they want. But some people have the hip socket facing forward. These tend to be sprinters and cyclists because that allows the knee to go straight forward and back. Whereas those who have the 
uh, Satago. But that's, that's genetic, right? They, they didn't develop that by being a sprinter or a cyclist. It's just genet like genetics, and they happen that's to right. be good at those things, <laughs> right? So, so some people really shouldn't be doing Lotus or, or anatomically unsuited in the first place to doing this position. Yeah, you, we generally choose by our sports hip. depending on what our bones right. allow us to do. Mm -hmm. Like hockey players here in Canada, hockey is a big thing. You have to yeah. push your leg out to the side to skate. And so that right. requires more of an externally rotated pelvis. If you can't do that, they put you on goal. So you tend the goal. <laughs> that requires <laughs> internal rotation so you can get your legs on the, on the ice to stop the pucks. So the bad skaters become goalies, and the best goalies are terrible skaters because of the huh. way the bones develop. So we kind of choose the sport that we're good at because of our bones. Huh. Yeah, so if you've yeah, got yeah. these anterior-facing acetabulum, you're not going to be able to externally rotate too much. And that means when you try to get your foot onto the opposite thigh, that's not coming from the hip socket. That's coming from the knees. Yeah. Now, when you bend the knee, when you flex the knee, those side ligaments I talked about, the collateral ligaments, they become mm. lax. They kind of fold up a bit. And the same mm. with the cruciate ligaments. They become a bit lax. And now when the knee is bent, you can twist it a little bit. You can wiggle it side to side. So a lot yeah, of people it's not, start it's to not twist a hinge the tibia. Joint, it? Yeah. It's basically a hinge joint. It's called a condyloid joint. But when you bend it, it can twist. So a bend knee can yeah. twist a bit. Yeah. But when yeah. you straighten the leg again, you want to make sure it's not twisted. <laughs> because the straight leg, those ligaments become taut once more. And you want to make sure it's straight before you straighten the yeah. leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it needs that twist to go yeah. into Lotus, right? There, there is a slight twist in it, and that's the complication, isn't there? It's like because it has to slide and go up, as it were, like to be very basic about it. Um, if it was no, just a hinge joint, you could, you could, if it just hinged if, completely, if you're, you'd have like that super Gurley, open hips. Yeah, if, if, like Paul Gurley has very externally rotated hips. So when he comes into Lotus, there's no twisting at all from the knee. Pure hinge. He just, right. Yeah, it's pure hinge, like your elbow. Imagine I'm just twisting the elbow enough at the shoulder that I can just straighten the elbow and I just mm -hmm. put my hand on the opposite shoulder. There is no stress in the elbow at all because it's all coming from the shoulder. Well, in the hips, if you've got really open hips, there's no straining you need at all. You just say, okay, do it like this. And they just flex the foot and bring or flex the knee and bring the foot on the opposite thigh. But if you're like me and I can't quite get there, then it has to come from the knee. Now, what happens then is as you're bringing the the, the foot up on the opposite thigh, you're twisting the tibia and the inside bone of the tibia is now compressing to the inside called the medial part of the femur. And that's where this little gasket, the meniscus is. And that gets caught in between there and it gets crushed or torn. Some people may feel it on the outside of the knee and that's the lateral collateral ligament being overly stretched. Mm. But for most people, it's that medial meniscus that they tear because they forced their foot into lotus because they couldn't externally rotate enough to the hip. Right. And so, and so most Freeman people, it's a medial. There, a medial. Yeah, it's always the inside one that gets torn. It's always. In, in yoga. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Because that's where, that's where the pressure goes in the lotus pose. Mm. And unfortunately, inside this joint capsule, there's no blood supply. The, the cartilage is fed mostly through synovial fluid. The nutrients it gets is from the fluid, and that comes from the surrounding cartilage and a few fibroblasts, some other cells in there. So there's no blood vessels going into it, or at least not the healthy cartilage. Sometimes as you get older and the cartilage gets damaged, blood vessels and nerves will actually grow into the cartilage. 
The sign was hmm. more in the back than in the knee, but that's not a good sign. That's right. a sign of old <laughs> cartilage that's now stiffening up and these blood vessels and nerves are getting in there causing havoc. And now you start to feel a lot right. of pain. So right. hopefully there's no blood supply into your, into your okay. cartilage, which means it doesn't heal very well because it's not got the nutrients. It does get some nutrients from the synovial fluid. So if you move the knee constantly, just flexion and extension, you can start to circulate that synovial fluid. And that mm. hopefully can bring some nutrition to the knee. Mm. Does it heal itself? It depends then? On... Sorry? It can Does it for heal some itself? people. It can, right? The meniscus can actually heal and people can have a lotus and a, a normal practice of Ashtanga anyways without operation. Yeah. Depending on the person and the pain. Right. Now, here's a yeah. little secret. Most people, when they're, I'm talking about men anyway, the studies was done in mm. men. Most men, yeah. when they get to be about 45, I shouldn't say most, about 35% of men at 45 years old have a torn meniscus, but they have no hmm. pain. Right. It's asymptomatic. So chances are one in three people that are over in their 40s or older, they have a torn meniscus, but they don't feel it. Because also there's no nerves right there as well. So there's, there's very few nerves there. So a lot of mm. people will tear this thing and they don't even notice it. Mm. So a lot of people can just get used to the pain or the pain goes away by itself. Doesn't mean that the problem is gone or that it's healed. It just, it doesn't bother you. Thing is, they probably would feel it if they wanted to do a shanga, wouldn't they? Then it would start to be a problem. And which is the kind of question of like, how much do you need to do the postures? Which is Not my so question sure. in the first place. Don't you think so? I mean, the doctor would say, oh, do you really need, you know, do you need to do that? I mean, I, this is like a long time ago before doctors had probably seen this and a lot, which is probably yeah. the case now. And they go like, you know, what are you doing? And they go, oh, like, this is what I'm doing. And they'd go, oh, why are you doing that? So you know, that. Do you, yeah, do you really need to do that? How are you otherwise, you know? And, yeah. you know, to be honest, I was okay. I wasn't too bad, you know, but people had said, well, if you don't say it's affecting your life, you, you, know, you know, they won't, you know, take, give you the MRI and, and put you on the operation yeah. schedule. So, so I said, you know, like it's a fair, I can't run for a bus. You know, we used to take buses a lot in London, you know, <laughs> right. I can't do anything like that. And they said, okay, okay. You know, but otherwise I don't think they would have, you know, and at that time I really wanted to do those things and, and practice Ashtanga like you, you know, I really wanted to do that. I mean, yeah. now I think I've torn my meniscus again, but I'm not so bothered about deep, deeper knee stuff, you know, so that I live with that right. and I do Lotus and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But at the time, you know, if you go to advanced series and you want to do things like Mula Bandhasana, rolling over yep. the knee, you know, like that, I mean, you've got to have a good knee for, you know, you're not going to muck around yes. at that stage, you know, which kind of, I suppose, brings me yeah. on to a question is like, what do you think about that kind of stuff with a knee, which is using that weird kind of uh, movement, which is not just a hinge joint. It's, it's, you know, kind of rolling over the knee. I mean, that it always struck me that that would not be a good idea for the long term. You know, you want to strengthen the leg more and not make it overly flexible, the ligaments around the knee, you know? Yeah, this has always been a problem with some of these uh, more well-known Ashtanga teachers. Like, I remember David Swenson telling me that every time David William would go down to the beach to go surfing, he'd pop his knees out. Yeah. <laughs> so he had to work on stability more. Um, I don't worry about hip mobility anymore. I mean, the... the Lotus pose to me, as I said, it's the destroyer of all knees. It's a high risk, low reward pose. And there are hmm. many high risk, low reward poses in yoga. Like I'm almost 70, I'll be turning 70 in two weeks. I don't do headstands anymore. You know, I've done them up to my 50s and 55, and then I am starting to get neck tweaks. And now the last right. MRI I had, I've got degenerating discs in my neck. 
probably because mm. I was doing too many headstands. Why do mm. I need to do headstands? Legs up the wall mm. serve me just as well. So another high risk, low reward pose. Mm. So, yeah, lotus pose looks great, but you don't need it. Now, unfortunately, in Ashtanga, as you said, when you get up in the series, there's so many poses that require it. Well, you're just going to have to do a Larry Schultz and say, no, I'm not going to do those. <laughs> I still like this part of the practice, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Any advice for people that maybe, you know, don't want an operation or want to see if they can do the, the healing without it? You know, are there certain poses? And I often say, like, it looks to me like maybe you need to strengthen the muscles around the knee. That was often said uh, when I was suffering, you know, that the, the, the knee muscles themselves were weak. So the, the ligaments were taking the, the force. And you mentioned before athletes training the knees and strengthening. Do you think there's any truth yeah. in that? Go to the gym, do a bit of that, you know, because yoga does seem to favor flexibility a little bit more than strength. Well, there's a, a physiotherapist in England, Adam Meekins, who has a saying that you can never go wrong by getting strong. <laughs> That's good. I, I think regardless of what you got, strengthening the knees yeah. is going to yeah. help you throughout your life. So, now, yeah. Sure, do strengthening of the knees. You don't probably need your knees to be more flexible. If, if you can sit on your heels, you've got all the flexibility you'll need in your life. So, yeah, strengthen the knees. But let me share with you a, a fascinating study I saw it actually was the subject of a documentary about 30 years ago. There was a, a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, who specialized in knee arthroscopy in a hospital in Texas. Now, as you know, when you do the, the surgery, they do two things. One is they do a lavage, which is a, a cleaning, changing the oil. They, they take all the synovial fluid out and they replace it with saline. So they flush away all the gritty bits. Like there's a lot of broken cartilage mm. and bones in there that create the grounding signs, sounds. Uh, they flushed all mm. that out. And then they also cut away the torn part. And this surgeon was wondering, what is it that makes my patients better? Is it the trimming away of the broken cartilage or is it the washing out? Mm. So he, he went to his department head and asked for permission to do a study. He would have six patients where you just do the lavage, six patients where you just do the trimming of the knee. And she told him, well, you need a control group if it's going to be a proper scientific study. And he said, control group? What do you mean by that? He said, well, you're going to have sick have people that you don't yeah. do anything to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they'll know that they didn't have the operation. Well, yeah. you, you figure it out. So what he did yeah. is he came up with three groups, one that he did the cutting, one that he did the washing. And the third group, he simulated an operation. He put the video up, you know, and he made three incisions in their knee, but he didn't trim. He gave them general anesthetic, and he even said yeah. the same script to his surgical crew that he would have anyway. And then a documentary group from the Discovery Channel followed these patients for the next two years. And at the end of two years, all of them had the same recovery. Even That's the ones incredible. that didn't have anything yeah, done That didn't have any operation. Right. Wow. And this uh, documentary crew was asking one of the persons who was in the control group, he was out playing basketball with his grandchildren. And before the surgery, the fake surgery, he couldn't even hardly walk. Now he's playing basketball. And they asked him, you know, you were part of the control group, right? And he just dribbled the ball, sunk a basket, and said, you know, <laughs> the mind's an amazing thing. But another guy that they talked to, he called up the surgeon. And the surgeon said, hey, how you doing? How's the knee? Oh, fine, fine. It's all great. Did the uh, documentary crew come to talk to you? Yeah, but they're confused. What do you mean confused? They thought I was part of the control group, but my knee's fine. And the surgeon said, you were part of the control group. <laughs> Now that was a small study, about 15 people or so. About 10 years later, 
New England Medical Journal did a bigger study with hundreds of people and found the exact same thing. Then 10 years after that, there was a thousand person study. This was talked about in the uh, British medical journals, a thousand people all in the same three groups and exactly the same thing. So I got better with my surgery, you got better with your surgery, but we mm. don't know what did it. Now my personal speculation is he still faked the incisions. So maybe it's just the inflammation that happened from right. that. In the inflammation, right. the body responded and said, oh, this knee is damaged, let's go heal it. That to me, I struggle with, I think, because I, as soon as I came round, even though my knee was really inflamed, it felt different straight away. You know, yeah, uh, I could For feel too, okay. The pain so, was gone. Yeah, yeah, I could kind of feel it's okay. It could, you know, even though I couldn't bend it that much, it, something I knew something was different about it. You know, so I don't know. I mean, I totally agree that there is something in the mind, but I'm not sure how far I would go down that that road. You know, well, what they yeah. do when they do that operation is they yeah. pump saline into the knee to make it swollen up. They yeah. actually separate the bones apart. So the surgeon getting it in there and cut away mm. the stuff. So mm. whether we cut it or not, just that swelling up creates a huge change. No longer got pressure on the meniscus because mm -mm. everything has been blown apart. Mm -mm. And that's that swelling that takes six weeks or so to really get back to, to yeah. normal again. Yeah. But they didn't do that with the control group at all. They just, or did they do that as well with the control group to give them the information? I don't know if you actually did the injection. Yeah. No, that would have been yeah. a washing. So I don't think they did. Right. Yeah. It's also kind yeah, of like, you hear people like Eric Schiffman didn't get the operation. He just worked yeah. with light weights and a lot of deep knee bends. Uh, David Life, he just did sitting on his heels. So what I did after my operation, then eventually I got both knees done. My recovery was basically to sit on my heels with the doweling tucked up behind the back of my knee. So I have a little one-inch piece of doweling. Yeah. And I would sit yeah, on yeah. a couple of yeah. blocks. So I wasn't yeah. sitting right on my heels, and I'd pull this in the back of the knee, and I'd sit there for a couple of minutes. Does and this is from work? the younger tradition. You know, the, the, uh, the, the putting well, something in the knee. Because you, you often see that, you know, and, and I remember John Scott advising that when I had my meniscus problem, and I hadn't had the operation. I'd just put a sock in the knee, you know. But then latterly, yeah, Mark Darby thing. would say, oh, you know, it's, that's really bad to create a space in the joint like that. Uh, that's a bad idea. And I see people up to this day doing it, and I, I'm not sure. What do you think? Well, I think it's okay. I don't think you're actually literally creating a space. That's what I was told. Visualize you're opening up the knee. But what I think mm. you are doing is you're putting pressure into the cartilage and all the other soft tissues around the knee. And all tissues need exercise. So I think mm. by stressing the knee this way, you're stimulating the cells inside the cartilage, the chondrocytes, the cells inside the joint capsule, the fibroblasts, to turn on and create more synovial fluid and, mm. and heal the knee. So I don't literally think you're pulling the knee apart, but I do think you are putting a stress. Like putting there. something underneath it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, or even people just think... simply a sitting on the sitting on the heels. I now don't think you actually need the bolster or the block or something yeah. folded up. I think just sit yeah. on your heels as often as you can will help the knee stay young. Vajrasana as well. I was recommended go to Vajrasana. You're lying down with a knee bend. You yeah. know, try and you know, stimulate that. And that seemed to help a little bit, but I must say nothing really. I mean, I had two years, both times. I kind of waited a couple of years and nothing got better, you know? Um, and, you know, people often ask, you know, like, oh, you know, when should I know? When should I decide? You know, should I keep trying to do, 
should I keep trying to do it? You know, but I mean, for many people, it's just not, for me, it wasn't an option. I could, I could not put that knee, you know, it was just not without kind of, you know, taking a general anesthetic. Yeah. It was so painful, you know, but I mean, for many people, like you mentioned, they're kind of stressing the knee. I mean, how far you, I, I guess there's no possibility to generalize. Is it how far to go in that, you know? Um, well, a general rule of thumb is if it hurts, don't do it. You've gone too far. Yeah, that's pretty sensible. But if it's just it? uncomfortable, yeah, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. No, exercise is not comfortable. <laughs> Indeed. You need, you need uh, to stress the <laughs> tissue. Yeah. You need to load them. No load, no help. Too much load, no help. It's an N-shaped curve. <laughs> so you got to find the right, Goldilocks right. position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what about, I mean, maybe you don't know about this, but what about um, people say, well, you know, if I can do it on one side and then I've got a torn meniscus on the other side, I can't do. Should I just do the same on both sides? What do you think about that idea? Any ideas? Well, in the last in the last volume of my last book, Your Upper Body Yoga, I've got a section on asymmetry and proportions. Mm. And in there, I address this whole thing. There does seem to be a bit of a an idea around in some yoga teachers' minds that we must be perfectly symmetric. So only go mm. so far on one side as you can go on the other side. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure where that comes from because your right arm, if you're right-handed, is much bigger than your left arm. We do all sorts of things with our right hand all day. Uh, you're telling your students, make sure you brush your teeth with your left hand too because we are asymmetric. One shoulder is higher. One foot is longer. One leg slightly longer. Our heart is on one side. Our liver is on the other side. Mm. Why mm. do we think we have to be symmetric? What we want to be is functional. And as long as you're functional, who cares that one side of the body doesn't look like the other side? That's an aesthetic. That's just some pleasing yeah. view that some people have that has no functional rationale to it. Right. That's a great, uh, that's a great piece of information. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, anything can go to a limit. Like if your one leg is three inches shorter than the other, okay, that's going to affect your daily living. But a half an inch or a quarter of an inch isn't. Right. So, I mean, addressing kind of great asymmetry is one thing, but, you know, just a, a lack, yeah. a kind of a, nat a natural slight imbalance is, is another thing, I think, is what you're saying, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah most people have a slight scoliosis. Their, their spine yeah. is slightly twisted mm -hmm. or curved as one side. They might find they can really twist easily to the right, but not as easily to the left. And they mm. might realize it. It's just their, their spine has a slight twist to it. Does that mean you should never go to your natural limit on the right? Well, sure. You want to go to where you're exercising the tissues. So go to where you stop and then mm. go on the other side to where you stop. Right. But they shouldn't be trying to kind of make it equal, make it equal, like go no. to the other side that's weaker and do that the same. You don't think One so? One asymmetry I've got, my right arm, mm. I can extend the elbow to 180 degrees. So it's completely mm. straight. Sorry, my left arm. Yeah. My right arm, I can only extend to about 170 degrees. I can I see it. Yeah. straighten the right arm. Yeah. And when I have my arms are like this, I can't tell you how many teachers have tried to correct me and down to, right, yeah. to make my right side look like the left side. And I just can't get the bones that shape really differently on one yeah. bone to the other. So. <laughs> <laughs> it won't go that yeah, way. I mean, it is aesthetically, there is this thing, isn't there, about uh, the, the, ple the, the pleasing nature of symmetry and that things should be the same. And, and I totally agree. And I think a lot of people get into trouble and get into injuries trying to make both sides the same. You know, it's like, well, one knee does this, one hip does this. So the other hip should do the same thing. And it's like, well, of course it doesn't, but they push it to be the same. And that's where the injury yeah. lies. Um, what do you think about the idea? Well, think of, especially think of in the Ashtanga. Japanese Zen. Think of the Japanese Zen artists. They don't have perfectly symmetric pictures. They have balance. So you might right. see a drawing mm -hmm. of Mount Fuji, and he's in one corner, and then there's a cherry tree blossom on the other side. 
So it's not perfectly symmetric, but it's balanced. That's what we want to seek in our life is balance, not symmetry. Yeah, that's balanced. a nice analogy. Yeah, totally. What about then, then this idea of doing lotus on one side, lotus on the other side, you know, like alternating where you cross your legs and all this stuff, you know, because in Ashtanga, it's always like, you know, one side over the other side. Like if it's lotus, then it's, what is it? Left over, left first and then yeah. right, you know, and then, you know, and then people yeah. ask me actually today, even today, what, where the, the legs cross behind the head, because traditionally Ashtanga, you put your left leg behind your head first, if you're doing two legs, for example, behind the head and then the right leg, you know. Um, and why it should be that way round, you know, and well, there's no good reason, I think, for any of this, really, apart from one, the favoring of the right as as higher and the left as lower, you know, uh, which is in all cultures, but you know, we see. Um, I don't think that, and, and I think if one could, you should cross the legs all the time, you know, I mean, Chuck Miller saying to me, cross your different legs when you're jumping back, cross one leg and then cross the other leg and trying to keep it symmetrical, you know, but actually, you get in trouble for that kind of thing. What do you reckon? Well, I've seen the same in the Zen tradition. When I first learned Zen, you had the left foot in first and the right foot in front of the left foot. And the, oh, yeah. the right hand was under the left hand. And yeah, make sure yeah, yeah. You, you don't get it the other way around. Don't do that. Because yeah, that's yeah. the way the Buddha did it. Yeah. But then I found another Zen tradition that said, why are you doing that way? You think you're a Buddha? you got to do it the exact opposite. So I, I gave up trying to figure out. It's just an aesthetic. Somebody's come up with one way of doing something. It worked for their teacher. It's going to work for me. But I agree with you. I think, you know, just use your full range of motion by working both sides. Mm. Not that they have to be equal, but I want my right side to have as much range of motion as it can have. And I want my left side to have as much range of motion. So if I'm always putting my left foot in first and then the right foot, when am I going to work my left leg to its full range of motion? Mm. And that's usually why most people who break their knees, they break the right knee worse than their left knee. Because it's the one that has to go up higher. So there's more yeah. torquing in that yeah. knee. Mm-hmm. Certainly, in my case, my right knee was much more damaged than my left knee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the case, and I think people will justify it by, well, it's energetic, though the you know the the the, the sides are something. There's something kind of magical and energetic about it, and I just think that's rubbish and and a shame that you know <laughs> this kind of you know this kind of thinking goes into something which is much more practical. I, I don't think it was there in the first place. I don't think Batabi Joyce or Krishnamacharya was really thinking you know that much about it, apart from slight, slight cultural protocol sometimes in terms of right first yeah. and then left, you know. But there's nothing special about it. Um, it seems natural then to move on to the hip a little bit, and you mentioned you know left over uh, the, the right going up higher you know and um, you know i have to say now i am suffering a right hip pain um i have been for mm. maybe since i was 40 or so and i think sooner or later something's going to have to be done about that unfortunately um and others and i was wondering well where does this come from and i think well yeah actually all that lotus probably and putting the right side first so it takes the, the torsion on the hip takes more uh, you know is is that much bit more you know because you're having to pull up that leg same the leg behind the head because the the right leg goes second yeah. so it goes back further you know and there's a lot of leg behind right. the head in the advanced series you know which i was doing for years um do you want to i mean you know rather than going in the lower back well, maybe you speak about the hip because it seems the natural kind of a flow from the knee to the hip and and i know in ashtanga now there's a prevalence of, of hip uh replacements that, that you know in well in all yoga i think um have you heard about yeah. that uh, yeah oh yeah um there's a couple of comments i can make on that one is it depends on again the orientation of the hip sockets like my my left hip is much more retroverted so i found it easier to do external rotation than my right hip so it wasn't mm. just the fact that the right was going on top. For me, the right mm. hip was pointing a bit more forward. And that made it harder to go into it. So we can't really tell, is it because you're always doing the right leg on top? 
or yeah. maybe your hip socket is just meant more antiverted facing forward, or maybe a bit of both. And also it's due with the uh, angle of the neck of the femur too. It has a role to play in all of this. There's a, there's a torsion to the femur, which will make external rotation more available or less available, depending on how much twisting your femur has. Mm. All long bones in the body have a torsion to them. Our tibia have a, about a 20 degree torsion, which means when we're standing relaxed, our feet are pointing outward. Despite mm. most yoga teachers who are alignment focused saying feet must be parallel. Yeah, That's not yeah, the yeah. neutral position because the, right. the tibia yeah. has this twist. So the front yeah. of the knee points straight ahead, but the ankle is pointing out to the side. Well, yeah. the femur has that, the humerus has that. So all of our lung bones have a twist to it. So depending yeah. on how much and twist your femur has yeah. and how much retroversion your hip socket has, you're going to get more or less stress on one side or the other. And the ret- I, I didn't realize that it was actually the hips are potentially structured differently. So one side is, one hip is, is more retroverted, as you say, than the other. Because if I look at myself yeah, doing a squat, the, yeah, if I, go, if I go to the gym, right, and I, I do a squat where I've got a bar on my shoulders, like that one, you know, and I can look yeah. in the mirror and I can see that one hip likes to do with the toe f- facing slightly forward, but the other one likes to do with the foot facing much more outwards, you know. Um, yeah. And I, well, I, I assumed I should shavasana. try and correct it. But maybe not. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Look at people right. in a Shavasana, and often you'll see one foot is pointing up, the other foot's going out to the side. And right there, you'll see an asymmetry. Now, the legs right. are perfectly neutral. Mm, That's what mm, we want. Mm. We want neutral. We don't want aesthetics. Mm. So imagine if you're standing in mountain pose, or the back feet in, in down dog, or the mm. back foot in warrior pose. One person's neutral is going to have the foot pointing straight ahead. The other person's neutral, the foot's going to be pointing outward. But mm. then a teacher comes along and tries to make them all both point straight ahead. Now, that foot that's pointing yeah. outward to come straight ahead, you have to internally rotate at the hip socket. And I think this is where a lot of the hip problems come in. And you need to play with the bones. And during some of my workshops, I bring the bones so the students can play with this. But flexion of the femur at the hip socket never re- leads to any impingement because the bones are just kind of turning over each other nice and easily. But if you internally rotate at the, the hip, that's bringing now the neck of the femur in front of the hip socket. So as you now flex the hips, now the front rim of the hip socket impinges on the neck of the femur. Mm. Now, it depends on the person. For most people, this will never happen. But for somebody who's externally rotated and they have to bring their feet pointing forward, they're now mm. internally rotating the femur, adding mm. the flexion at the pelvis. Now they're starting to work on the labrum and they can start to tear the labrum. And if you get right. it too much, you're working on the neck of the femur and the actual bone of the hip socket. And eventually those, those tissues can wear out and you might need a replacement. So hmm. too much compression, ignoring the pain that comes with it is a recipe for not helping the hip. <laughs> but you can't That's say true. this is always gonna happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, you know, a caveat to that is that, yes, I mean, the pain actually, to be honest, started when I tried to add a little bit of running. And I was a great runner in my, you know, my teens, you know. Um, right. Actually, very, yeah, I was, was, won everything. I was very, very, that was my best sport, uh, long distance running. And when I come back to it, you know, I thought, oh, let's have a, give it, give it a little go. I was like 38 or something, you know, 39. And I started and uh, I was getting pain and I ignored it, you know, and now, yeah, yeah, it's not uh, it's not gone back to normal. It's not right there. But what could it be? I mean, you know, people are now mentioning hip pain to me as well more and more. Are there different kind of things that could happen there in the joint? Oh yeah, there's a host and, of and things. What's the, and I, yeah. Right, okay. Well, 
what and what's the solution in in different cases can you can you flesh that out a little bit more sure well first of all i'm not a physician i'm not a therapist i'm not a doctor <laughs> so the first thing i would ask anybody coming to me with these complaints is what did your doctor say mm -hmm. and if they say oh, doctors what do they know well they know more than i do so i would if they have gone to the doctor i'd say okay what's the mri show what's the uh, x-ray show now, all those things you have to take many grains of salt. Because there's mm. one uh, a Montreal physician who got into this whole area of physiology. He once showed me an X-ray and says, "Okay, look at this X-ray. Can you tell me if the patient is alive or dead?" <laughs> you can't. You know, the X-ray can't tell you some very basic things like is this yeah. a dead person or a live person. Right. So right, right. they can help guide your exploration, but they're not the definitive thing. As I said, a lot of people have torn meniscus, but they have no pain. Mm. So in the knee, or sorry, in the hip, it could be bone-on-bone -bone compression that's wearing away the cartilage lining the end of the, the hip socket. There's a little lip there called the labrum. It could be that the ligaments that wrap the joint, these are called the capsular ligaments, it could be that they've been overstretched. Trying to get your foot back behind your head is mm. going to put a tremendous tensile stress onto those ligaments. So what you may be feeling there is just you've, you've torn the capsular ligaments. It has nothing to do with the joint itself. It's the tissues lining the joint, around the joint, that's hurt. Hmm. So there's hmm. lots hmm. of different things that could be going wrong. You could have arthritis in the joint. It could be hmm. an overuse system. Like a lot of runners, yeah, they, they've been wearing that joint out so that the, the cartilage at the end of the bones is worn away, and now it's bone-on-bone -bone compression. That oh. really hurts. I bet it does, yeah. yeah so yeah. there's so many things that could be. You actually need to have the MRI to go in there and see what's actually happening. Yeah, I but, had an X-ray. It didn't, didn't show anything, nothing at all. No, no problem. No, the X-ray only show the yeah. bones. It won't show the soft yeah, tissues. Yeah, no, it's fine. Bones the MRI right. will show this. Yeah, 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 yeah. The MRI. But again, you have, have a lot MRI. of false negatives or false positives, rather. Mm, mm, just, just for a second, let's just talk about the spine for a moment. In between the vertebra. There's a, a little jelly donut there called the disc. Yeah. Now, sometimes the jelly in that donut gets pushed out to the back and you get a bulging mm. disc. Well, it used to be anyone who had back pain, they'd go and get an X-ray or some imaging and it would show a bulging disc. And they thought, well, the disc is pushing on the nerve root. We have to do an operation. Mm. But sometime around the 1960s or 70s, they realized, well, most people have a bulging disc, but they don't have pain. But if you have pain, you go get an x-ray, they'll probably find a bulging disc. Now, the mm. statistics here are easy to remember. 30% of 20-year-olds have a bulging disc in their lower back, and they don't know it. There's no pain. 40% of 30-year-olds, 50% of 40-year-olds. See the wow. pattern? 60% yeah, of 50-year-olds, yeah, yeah. 70% right. of 60-year-olds, 80% yeah. of 70-year-olds, and then 86% of 90-year-olds yeah. have a bulging disc, and they're completely asymptomatic. So right. Imagine you're in your 50s. There's a 60% chance you already have a bulging disc. And now you're getting mm. back pain. You go get the x-ray and they say, oh, I see where your back pain yeah. is coming from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No. no it's yeah. always been there. The same can be with the hip. A lot of people have torn labrums and they don't even know it. So you can get an x-ray and the guy say, okay, I see a torn labrum there. But, you know, I don't know if that's causing your pain because I don't know if it was there before. Do you have an earlier x-ray like two years ago? So if you had an early x-ray two years ago, and now you see this yeah. torn, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it wasn't mm -hmm. torn before, now you've got a bit stronger of a clue. 
something happened there. It's kind well, of surprising hearing a yoga anatomist talk in this way, because what you're saying is there's this factor that's just unknowable, really, that it's not mechanical, that there's a, you know, what's causing them pain may not be identifiable exactly. If two people have the same tear, one feels pain, one the other doesn't, then there's a kind right. of, there's a factor there, which is energy, really, isn't it? That's all you can really talk about in the end, that there's something there which is, you can't see. Well, one of the people in this whole area that I admire quite a bit and respect his opinion Professor Stuart McGill, he's a, a spine biomechanic. He spent his whole career studying the spine, creating all sorts of weird testing protocols and measuring how much stress can take and what muscles are turning on when you use your back. What he suggests whenever somebody comes to him, and he's had people from all walks of life, elite athletes and NBA players, NHL hockey players, he says, look, you can always do the surgery. Let's leave that as a last resort. Instead, let's do a virtual surgery. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, if you're going to get surgery, first of all, before you come into the operating theater, the doctor will prescribe you some things to do. Like, let's drop a few pounds. Let's stop smoking. Let's quit out, you know, four packs of beer a day. Let's just get in general health together. And then let's come and do the surgery. And then afterwards, we'll give you some physical therapy to do. So McGill would say, okay, let's do all that without actually doing the surgery. So I'm going to give you the pre-op routine. And then we're going to pretend that on next Tuesday we had the surgery. I'm going to give you the post-op routine. <laughs> now, you know, after your knee surgery, you couldn't walk like you used to. You walked probably okay. You probably didn't need crutches. But you weren't sitting on your heels the next day. You probably had to no. take some time off from your yoga practice. Or you modified it just at upper body. Meanwhile, yeah, yeah, your yeah. lower body was resting. So yeah. Let's do that rest anyway. Let's just pretend you can't move now for a couple of weeks and just do very gentle movements. Let's build it back over the months and the weeks. So let's do this whole thing as if you've had the operation, but don't have the operation and see how you do. If that doesn't work, you can still have the operation. But generally, when he has people go through this whole routine, yeah. they're fine. Well, that's a certain argument, isn't it? Maybe to have more patience than just sign up straight away for an operation, isn't it? But I suppose people will... will... Oh, but also, you still have to do what he said. You still have to yeah. back off, yeah. not yeah. keep putting your foot behind your head. Give it several months yes, like that, you would if you had your hip replaced yeah, or something yeah. and rebuild it over time, gently, gently working back to it. Not Now, most people don't have the patience to do that. When you yes, have a surgery, you don't get a yeah, choice. Yeah. Yeah, you have yeah, to yeah. follow the protocol. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there is an intangible there, isn't there? I mean, I remember the study, there was a famous study, wasn't there, of people with x-ray for back pain, it's like they, or MRI, and these people, they said, should definitely have back pain, and they didn't, and then vice versa, those people that, that right. you know, were complaining of great back pain, they couldn't really find anything there that was causing them the back pain, you know? Um, so, I mean, you know, is this just mind over matter, or, or is there something else that we can, you know, we can't talk about here? I'm very, I'm re always reticent to say, well, you know, it's it's just in the mind, you know, because especially when people no. are in pain, it's like, well, to say that to them is like, you know, it's very unfair as well. It's like, well, you know, they actually feel pain, they do feel pain, you know. Um, yeah, but, I mean, if somebody has a big cut with a knife and their hand hurts, you can see it's a physical cause. Yes, exactly. Pain yeah, is, yeah, yeah. is is physical. But pain is also neurological and pain is also psychological. Mm. It's not just one thing. It's a whole host of things. So the whole branch of modern pain science is quite big nowadays. It's not just physical, but it is physical. It's not just right. psychological, but it can be psychological. Mm. There was a pivotal study done probably 20 years or more now in the Boeing factory down in Seattle. 
And they, they monitored 4,000 Boeing employees from all parts of the company, people in the factory putting planes, wings on, people driving trucks, people in their office at their desk. And they tracked how many people got back pain. And the only thing they can correlate the back pain with wasn't the job they had, but how much they liked their job. People <laughs> who hated their job had lots of back pain. <laughs> people who loved their jobs had no back pain. So there, there's a right. psychosocial element to pain. So today we have yeah. something called the biopsychosocial model of health. Bio, biology makes a difference. Psycho, psychology makes a difference. Social, your social environment makes a difference. All these things can contribute to or make pain worse or longer. So you, mm. can, you can't mm. just point to one thing anymore. You have to look at the whole garden. Why aren't your roses doing well? Well, maybe that oak tree's gotten so big it's shading the roses too much. Or maybe mm. the, the water is being sucked away by the tree. Or maybe there's too many aphids and you need to plant some broccoli over here to draw the aphids away. You have to look at the whole person, not just what's happening in your hip. Let me just kind of wrap up the interview by asking what's the most surprising thing that you've, you've learned over the years that you've discovered in, in, in doing all this anatomy work you know, and getting involved in this? And how has it impacted your own practice and the way you approach your own body? Well, the most surprising thing, i got to give credit to Paul Grilly, is just opening my eyes to the fact how different we all are. Right. You know, I, I, my anatomy view was, here's an anatomy book. I memorized the anatomy book, and it shows mm. every hip socket in the same place. And mm. Paul said, well, that's not true. That's an average. It's a composite of hundreds of cadavers. Some people have hip sockets out. Some people have hip sockets in. And once I realized that, and I started to realize how that affected my own body and how my left hip was more retrograde than my right, so now if I'm doing half lotus, I'll always do it on my left side. That's my good side. And if I'm going to do an eagle pose, I'll do it with my right leg because that's my <laughs> internally rotating side. So that just changed my whole practice. I got to accept the things my body could do, and I got to completely forget how I was supposed to look. Again, but if you're not my, going, my I mean, no, I, is, sorry. Right? Yep. My, one of my favorite sayings is we don't use the body to get into a pose. We use the pose to get into the body. We don't use the body to get into the pose means we don't try to torque the body to get a shape. Instead, the shapes are in service of creating some appropriate stress into the body. That's what we're after. So who cares what it looks like? What's important is what are you feeling? What does it feel like? How would you teach from that perspective then? Because I know you teach as well. And, and I mean, you know, then if you're not teaching from symmetry or alignment or the, uh, a certain particular nat anatomical protocol or vision, yeah, it makes things very, very complicated. If you can't say, well, you know, this is the way this joint moves, or if you can't say this is the way that this pose should look, then how the hell would you say anything to anyone in the end? Yeah, I usually get this reaction and question often. Right, Paul Grilly right, right. says, when you, when you first start to understand this functional approach to yoga, as opposed to an aesthetic approach, an aesthetic approach is trying to make everyone look the same. That's just mm. function is you want everyone to feel something in a targeted area. Mm. When you first get presented with this, you kind of go through the five stages of grieving. First is <laughs> denial. Yeah, he can't be right. He can't, that can't be what he said. And then comes anger. Now, I spent $3,000 in a yoga teacher training telling me how to get everyone to look the same way. And then comes bargaining. Well, what about if it's like this or this? And then comes depression. Now I don't know what to say anymore. I, I don't know how to teach. I'm just going to quit and go to join a convent or something. But hopefully at the end, you'll get this acceptance 
and you start to integrate all this into your own teaching style. I'm not anti-alignment. I'm just anti-universal alignment. There's no one alignment that's going to work for everybody. But there mm. is an alignment that's going to work for your body. So I like to think what I do when I teach is to give everyone flying lessons. They're all up there in their own plane. They have to take responsibility for landing the plane. But some of them are flying 747s, and some of them are little Cessna 150s. Everyone's plane is different. So I'm going to have to teach them flying lessons. And by that, I, I teach them what their plane can do. So when I teach down dog, for instance, I don't give them directions of where the feet should be, where the hands should be. Mm-hmm. First time we come down dog, I'll say, let's experiment. Have your hands as wide apart as the mat, palms facing out. How does that feel? How does it feel on the shoulders, the spine? Do you feel comfortable, safe, secure, solid? Now let's try it with the hands shoulder width apart, fingers pointing straight ahead. How does that feel? Now try it with the hands together, fingers overlapping. Mm. How does that feel? Mm. Now of those three positions, which one felt the best in your body today? And if that's the way you felt best, I don't have to tell you anymore when we come to down dog, that's where your hands go. And the same with the feet and the same with other body parts. I let them figure out what their plane can do. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of responsibility in the student then, isn't it? No. Definitely well, I don't want to take the responsibility answer. of telling yeah. them what to do because I don't know their bodies. I'm number like four to 747. As a, as a segue, as a kind of a very, very brief sidebar, what do you think about carrying angles? Someone to me recently worked, uh, at a workshop, I was suggesting, uh, you know, myopically that the hand should be straightforward yeah. if possible in downward <laughs> dog or in jumping and etc. And they say, well, Matthias Ratti, who was a teacher of mine, in fact, was talking a lot of the late in her later years about carrying angles. Um, and so I then researched mm-hmm. online and it did seem to bear out that, you know, some people ought to have the, the hand, the external rotation of the shoulder in downward dog and, and this kind of thing or jumping through. Do you have anything to say about that? Cause I'd really personally yeah, be interested. That's, that's part yeah. of my last book, your upper body yoga. I talked about the carrying angle. If, if people in the audience don't know what the carrying angle is, if they just stand in front of a mirror with mm. their hands at their side, palms facing the mirror, they might notice that their upper arm and the lower arm form an angle. Mm. Now, on my left arm, I don't have an angle. It's completely straight. Mm. But my right arm goes up to the side about 12 degrees. Now, the right. average person has about a 12-degree carrying angle. And it's because the alignment at the bottom of the humerus, the distal part of the humerus, it's, it's on an angle. The condyles are on an angle. So that makes the forearm go off to the side now when you pronate the hand over that masks the carrying angle so many people can get their palms almost shoulder width apart because they're pronating but some people have a carrying angle of 25 degrees mm. and when they pronate they still have a 15 degree carrying angle now for mm. them to bring their hand shoulder width apart they have to internally rotate at the shoulders right so well what do you want you want the shoulders to be neutral so the hands can be neutral so start with the shoulders first, and then the hands will mm. go where they go. And if mm. that's wider than the shoulder width apart, so be it. Mm. That's a lot clearer, Same actually. Thank pose. you for that. Yeah, yeah. Same in handstand. <laughs> that, thank you for that. That's really helpful. Um, well, okay, so finally, I, I don't want to take too much of your time up, but finally, well, how has this affected your own practice? Have you brought it, you know, most changed, the way it's changed your own approach? I suppose you've probably said it mainly, but there's probably something else you yeah. can say about yeah. Well, first of all, I, I now recognize when I've hit the limit of how far my body can open, I now know what compression feels like. Right. So okay. once I reach mm-hmm. the end of our range of motion, I don't try to go further. Mm. I'm not afraid of being at my end range of motion mm. because you need to stress the joints. You need to stress the mm. joint capsules and the bones, but I'm not trying to go past them. I'll never put my foot behind my head. I just don't have the hips for it. 
but now I know enough not to try. <laughs> to try it, I'm just going to break the hip open. Yeah. So it's given me tremendous permission now not to have to do poses that I just can't do. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Uh, let's see if, if people give themselves permission on the back of this podcast. I hope so. <laughs> uh, you've given some some great ideas and sharings. And yeah, I mean, I think there's this feeling that well, someone else next to me can do it, so my body ought to do it as well. And if I don't. If I don't achieve it, then I'm letting myself down or not trying hard enough, right. you know, or something, something wrong with me and my body. But it's actually, well, you know, like you didn't make your body, so you're irresponsible for what it can or can't do, you know. So, yeah. Um, and people will always say, yeah, well, yeah. you know, what's this pain feel like? And I, you know, I don't know. I mean, can you say, <laughs> just to wrap it up, can, can you say anything on that? Because that's the, other, the last thing that people will say. Well, how do I know if I'm, if I'm doing an injury to myself or if it's just uncomfortable? You know, should I just be comfortable all the time? And you talk about stress and exercise being uncomfortable. It is. But on the other hand, it shouldn't be painful. And it seems that we struggle with recognizing the difference between the two sometimes. Yeah, because we like black and white answers. We, we yeah. have trouble with grayscales and spectrums. The same with pain. Pain is a subjective experience that someone's having. There's no way to quantify that. You get some people, it's like Monty Python's Search for the Holy Grail, where King Arthur is jousting with the Black Knight, and he cuts off his arm, and he says, that is a flesh wound. Cuts off the other arm and says, what a scratch. I've had worse. <laughs> some people are like that. You see them holding chaturanga. And you go up and ask, how are you feeling? Fine, fine. This is going to be so good. I'm going to be so sore tomorrow. They don't know what pain is at all. They have no idea. But there's other people who the slightest sensation, ooh, what was that? Ooh, I better back off. Mm. I'm not sure what that was. Mm. So mm. There's, it's not a black and white thing. Everyone has their own mm. subjective experience of it. All mm. I can tell you is over time, if you start to build your interoception, your ability to know what's happening in your body, which is mm. part of flying lessons, you have to teach the students how to pay attention. So mm. when I've got a student in a pose, I'll tell them, no pain, no pain. Not like the West where we say no pain, no gain. Yeah, yeah, If you yeah. translate no pain, no gain into Sanskrit, it's rendered bullshit tihi. <laughs> no pain, no gain, bullshit tihi. <laughs> pain is anything that's sharp, burning, stabbing, electrical, tingly. Mm. That's just a rough description. But if you're feeling those things, mm. your body's trying to tell you something. Back off. Mm. Mm. But for everybody, they've got their own. Some people, they have a whole scale before pain called discomfort. Mm. And once they're in the highest level of discomfort, then it becomes painful. Other people, yeah. their internal pain thing is right from just a little bit of discomfort to pain. And they only have like two or three steps. That hurts mm. really quickly. Other people, as I say, the arm could be falling off. And yeah, I don't feel much. It's okay. It'll be fine. So. Yeah, it's your airplane. Yeah. You're going to have to figure out what pain means for you. And the other well, part of that, Adam, is when yeah. people are in chronic pain. Mm. When I'm dealing with somebody who's in chronic fatigue syndrome or chronic pain, and I mm. tell them, don't be where it's painful, they just look at me and say, the VA do life is painful. Yeah. Yeah. Everything yeah. hurts. So in that case, okay, does this make it hurt worse? Not only while you're in the pose, but when you come out and then the next day or two. So you can't just look for pain at once. It's yeah. while you're in the pose, if it hurts, come out. After you came out of the pose, mm. did it hurt? Mm -mm. In which case, next time, mm -mm. remember that. Or the mm -mm. next day or two. That's usually where nerve mm -mm. pain shows up. You start to feel the tingling. You have to think back, what was I doing yesterday? Oh, yeah, drop backs to yeah. wheels. <laughs> now I'm getting the tingling yeah. in the fingers. Maybe yeah. you're destroying Didn't the brachial the plexus. Mm -mm -mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, with what, with what you're saying is that 
yes, there's there's a lot of gray areas, but you're giving a good framework for the individual to to liaise and kind of journey through those areas, you know, and find out for themselves. So, you know, it's like, yes, you know, everything isn't black and white, but there's definitely frameworks like, you know, like you suggest with the pain to, to, you know, rather than just, well, I don't know anymore, you know, like to, to, or I don't know how to teach if I don't do exact parallel alignment with heel to heel and, you know, whatever straight arms, you know, there is a lot around this and, and, you know, it's just amazing to hear this kind of thing. And I think it's so important in the yoga world. And um, again, you know, just thanks for your time. And I'm hoping for a trilogy here as well as your book. We're going <laughs> to uh, tap Any Bernie time. again if uh, yeah if he's if, yeah if he's up for it then uh, we'll we'll try a third one in, in an, uh, another six months or something and uh, it's just been great Bernie thank you very much for your time and uh, yeah thank uh, you Adam it's fun take care. Thank